You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living, heard here on Radio Maria Canada a Catholic voice wherever you are. And, you know, I've been enjoying sharing these old reflections from the Catholic Hour. Uh, Archbishop Sheen spoke for over 20 years on the Catholic Hour, and up to 5 million people listen to his messages each week. And so I wanted to share with you today uh, one of the reflections entitled, The Basis for Our Anxiety. Now, we live in a very anxious world. It seems that Everybody is struggling with, oh, I'm anxious about this and I'm anxious about that. So we addressed that topic uh, back in 1948. And so I want to share that recording with you today. And uh, then in the second half of our program, we'll also share another reflection by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And we say venerable because the Church has declared him venerable. Uh, The Vatican, of course, uh, did a scrutiny of his writings and his teachings and uh, took testimonies from people about his holiness and his sanctity. And, uh, of course, they declared him venerable in the year 2012. And so I thought I'd begin our program with a little prayer. I love to pray this prayer to obtain a spiritual favor through the intercession of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. So please join me in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you alone grant us every blessing in heaven and on earth through the redemptive mission of your divine Son, Jesus Christ, and by the working of the Holy Spirit. If it be according to your will, glorify your servant, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, by granting the favor I now request through his prayerful intercession. And here let us mention our own request. And we make this prayer confidently through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Now let us enjoy this reflection by, at that time, Monsignor Sheen, on the topic of the basis of our anxiety. Enjoy. Friends, 
In last Sunday's broadcast, we said that if the modern soul wishes to go to God through the inner self instead of from nature, that the Christian apologist ought to take him on that road. Today we begin with the fact that one of psychology's favorite descriptions of modern man is that he has an anxiety complex. Psychology is more right than it suspects, and for a more profound reason than it knows. There is no doubt that an increasing number of persons today are afflicted with psychoses, neuroses, complex complexes, fears, anxieties, irritabilities, and ulcers. But modern anxiety is quite different from the anxiety of previous and more normal ages in two ways. In other days, men were anxious about their souls, but modern anxiety is concerned principally with the body. The major worries today are economic security, health, complexion, wealth, social prestige, and biological energies. To read modern advertisements, one would think that the greatest calamity that could befall a human being would be either to have dishpan hands or to have a cough in the T-zone. This overemphasis on corporal security is not healthy and has begotten a generation that is much more concerned about having life belts to wear on a sea journey than about the cabin it will occupy and enjoy. And the second characteristic of modern anxiety is that its fears are not objective but subjective. Fear of objective natural dangers such as lightning, beasts, and famine is normal. Fear of objective dangers is always part of the human nature. But a subjective anticipated fear of what one believes would be dangerous if it happened is abnormal. Such persons with anxieties become like fish caught in nets and birds trapped in the snare, increasing their own entanglements by the fierceness of their disorderly exertions to overcome them. Modern psychologists have done an admirable service in studying anxieties both on the level of consciousness and unconsciousness. But anxiety is deeper than they believe. For it appears on all the levels of life. Anxiety may take on new forms in our disordered civilization, but anxiety has always been rooted in the nature of man. There never has been a human being in the history of the world without an anxiety complex. Because anxiety has always existed, we want to find the basic reason for it. The permanent ground of all restlessness, of which the psychological is only a superficial manifestation. The basic reason of all anxiety is due to the fact that man is a composite of body and soul. Standing midway between the animal and the angel, living in a finite world 
and aspiring toward the infinite. Moving in time and seeking the eternal, he is pulled at one moment toward the pleasures of the body and at another moment toward the joys of the spirit. That is why he is anxious. He is in a constant state of suspension between matter and spirit. He may be likened to a mountain climber who aspires to the great peak above. And yet, looking back from his present position, fears falling to the abyss below. This example of the mountain climber, however, is not exact, for he has no helper on the upper peak to which he aspires. Man, however, has. For God on the upper peak of eternity reaches out his omnipotent hand to lift man up even before man raises his voice in plea. It is evident then that even though we escaped all of the anxieties of modern economic life, even though we avoided all of the tensions which psychology finds in consciousness and unconsciousness, we would still have that great basic anxiety that is born of our creatureliness. Anxiety stems fundamentally from irregulated desires, from the creature wanting something that is unnecessary for him, or contrary to his nature, or positively harmful to his soul. Anxiety increases in direct ratio and proportion as man departs from God. In plain, simple language, every man in the world has an anxiety complex because he has a capacity to be either a sinner or a saint. Let no one ever tell you that your anxiety comes from the fact that your unconscious mind still bears traces of your animal origin. This is untrue, simply because animals left to themselves never have anxieties. They have natural fears, which are good, but no subjective anxiety such as man, unless their frustration is deliberately induced in them by the perverse intelligence of man making experiments. No fox has an anxiety complex about his lair being deeper than that of the Jones fox. Nor do robins ever develop a psychosis about whether they will take a trip for the winter to California or to Florida. An animal can never be less than it is, but a man can, because a man is a composite of spirit and matter. When we see a monkey acting foolishly, we do not say, do not act like a nut. But when we see a man acting foolishly, we do say, do not act like a monkey. Because a man is a spirit as well as matter, he can descend to the level of the beasts. But not so completely as to destroy the image of God in his soul. It is this that makes the peculiar tragedy of man. Crows have no psychoses. Pigs have no neuroses. 
Chickens are never frustrated. And neither would man ever be frustrated, nor would he have an anxiety complex, nor a despair, if he were only an animal made for this world. It takes eternity to make a man despair. An animal can have only a sick body, but not a sick soul. A psychology which denies the soul is therefore constantly contradicting itself. It calls man an animal, and then proceeds to describe in man an anxiety which no animal has, because no animal has a rational soul. Now, since the basic cause of man's anxiety is the possibility of being either a saint or a sinner, it follows that there are only two alternatives. Man can either mount upwards to the peak of eternity or else slip backwards to the chasms of despair and frustration. I know there are some who think there is another alternative, namely indifference. They think that just as bears hibernate for a season in a state of animated suspension, so they can sleep through life without choosing for God or against him. But this is no escape, not only because winter ends and one is forced to make a decision, but because indifference itself is a decision. White fences do not remain white fences by doing nothing to them. They soon become black fences. But the mere fact that we do not go forward we go backward. There are no planes in the spiritual life. We are either going uphill or coming down. And furthermore, the attitude of indifference is only mental. Though a soul does not positively reject the infinite, the infinite rejects him. The talents that are unused are taken away. And God speaks in the scriptures to the broad-minded, indifferent soul, saying, Because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit thee from my mouth. Returning now to the supreme alternatives, how resolve this basic anxiety of life? Either man can make the soul subject to the body or the body subject to the soul. Consider those who resolve the anxiety in favor of godlessness. They invariably end by substituting a false god for the true god of love. Now this false god can take on three forms. If the God is one's ego, that is the sin of pride. If the God is flesh, that is the sin of lust. If the God is things, that is the sin of avarice. Pride, lust, avarice. The devil, the flesh, and the world. 
These constitute the new unholy trinity by which man is wooed away from the holy trinity and from the discovery of the goal of life. Now you understand why to compensate for those sins. There exists in religion the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Anxiety and frustration invariably follow when the desires of the heart are centered on any one of these or anything less than God. For then all the pleasures of earth turn out to be the opposite of what was expected. The expectation is joyous. The realization is disgust. Certainly you want to go through life being something else than a contented cow. Consider now that other alternative which overcomes the basic anxiety of life by an act of abandonment in which the body is disciplined and made subject to the spirit and the whole personality is directed to God. If you are interested in enjoying this inner peace, there are three ways to acquire it. First, control your desires. All anxieties and frustrations are due to uncontrolled desires. When a soul does not get what it wants, it falls into sadness and distress. One of the greatest deceptions is the belief that leisure and money are the two essentials of happiness. The sad fact of life is that there are no more frustrated people on the face of the earth than those who have nothing to do and those who have too much money for their own good. Work never killed anybody. But worry does. And to conquer anxiety does not mean eliminating desires, but rather arranging them in a kind of hierarchy, as our Lord reminded us in saying that life is more than the raiment. Now this implies not only a renunciation of what is evil, but even a voluntary deprivation of some things that are lawful in order that the spirit is made free to mount to God. When the sacrifices of our Lord become the inspiration of controlled desires, then the burdens of life are borne not only with renunciation, but are even accepted as providential calls to greater intimacy with him. And secondly, you can overcome your psychic anxieties by transferring concern from your body to your soul. There are two kinds of anxieties, one about time, the other about eternity. Most people are anxious about those very things they should not be anxious about. Our divine Lord in the gospel mentioned at least nine things that we should not worry about. And these are the nine anxieties which keep most people in a state of unrest. The nine anxieties our blessed Lord told us not to worry about were these. Having your body killed. About what you will say in days of persecution when you were called on the carpet before commissars about whether you should build another barn or another skyscraper, about family disputes because you accept the faith, 
about mother-in-law troubles, about your meals, your drinks, your fashions, your complexion. But he did tell us that we should be very anxious about one thing and one thing only, our soul. Our Lord does not mean that worldly anxieties are unnecessary. He only said that if we are anxious about our souls, the lesser anxieties would dissolve. Seek ye first, he said. Note he did not say not only, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things shall be added unto you. Every human being must love the perfect or else he will go crazy because no man is sufficient unto himself. The third way to overcome your anxieties is to trust in God. Love is reciprocal. It is received in proportion as it is given. That is why there is a special providence for those who trust in God. Contrast to children. One child in a happy family who is well provided for in the way of food, clothing, and education, the other a homeless orphan of the street. The first child lives in an area of love. The second is outside of that area and therefore enjoys none of the privileges. Many souls deliberately choose to exclude themselves from that area of the Heavenly Father's love where they might live as his children. They trust only in their own resources, their own bank account, their own devices. They are very much like a son who in time of need never called on his wealthy father for assistance. The result is they lose many of the blessings of those who are relieved from anxieties by thrusting themselves into the loving arms of God. Many favors and blessings are hanging from heaven to relieve our temporal anxieties if we did but cut them down with the sword of our trust in God. And relief from anxiety comes not from giving ourselves to God by halves, but by an all-compassing love, wherein we go back not to our past in fear, not to the future in anxiety, but lie quiet in his hand, having no will but his own. Then the shadows of life are seen, as the poet says, as the shade of his hand outstretched caressingly. Take a resolution then to make a holy hour a day in meditation. If you are a Catholic, do it in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Remember that your unconscious mind is disturbed because your final purpose of life is not yet decided. And during that hour of meditation, decide why you are living where you are going, and then you won't have anxieties in your unconscious mind. If there were anywhere on earth a resting place other than God, you may be sure that your soul in its long history would have found it out before this. As St. Augustine said, our hearts were made for thee, and they are restless until they rest in thee, O God. Why stand ye then at the gate of indecision? Has your heart 
lost its wings? While each plant makes haste to make good the promise of the bud, hear ye the Savior's question, why are you anxious? Tis God who woos your anxious, restless heart, and if you have an anxiety complex, it is because you are not yet divinely embraced. Tis want of courage not to yield. Be not death's prey before you be love's prize. Let the fortress of thyself be taken. And then your ego being undone, you will be an uncaught captive in the hands of love. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you enjoyed that reflection from the classic recordings of the Catholic Hour, and that broadcast went out in 1948, and uh, he did tackle that topic of anxiety, and uh, feel free to re-listen to this program time and time again. You can visit our website here at Radio Maria Canada, and uh, of course, uh, re-listen on an archive show that we'll post in a few weeks for you. And uh, by all means, please uh, get as much Bishop Sheen in your own library as you can. I think of uh, the website FultonSheen.com, who has over 300 recordings that you can download onto your computer or your cell phone uh, just for pennies. And uh, they have been our sponsors and helped us to put these quality recordings on this show today. And so again, their website, FultonSheen.com. Please support them. And so now I want to share a second reflection on love. It's the word called kenosis, and Bishop Sheen gave a retreat a number of years ago, and so here are a few of his reflections from that retreat. Take care. I see we have a young audience in the $5 seats. (laughs) I don't know how interesting this is going to be for you because... I'm going to use some big words, but I'll explain them. And apropos of big words, I was once giving a talk in the town hall of Philadelphia, and I lost my way. And I asked a boy, where is the town hall? And he told me, I do not remember the exact address, but something like 12th and Chestnut. And he said, what are you going to do there? I said, give a talk. On what? Well, I didn't want to tell him that I was talking on my usual subject, which will be my subject this afternoon, the accipito frontalis of the convalistic convolutions of the metaphorical abiclearum pelvearum. (laughs) So I simplified it, and I said, well, boys, I'm going to talk on heaven and how to get there. Would you like to come and find out? They said, you don't even know the way to the town hall. (laughs) And another story comes to my mind about big words. 
I began my teaching career in England. And I was lecturing this particular day on the subject of theandric actions. Now that sounds very learned, but a theandric action is very simply one in which our blessed Lord combines his divine and human nature. For example, when our Lord picked up some dust, mixed it with spittle, and applied it to the eyes of the blind man, that is a theandric action because it was the action of God and man. But when you explain it to a class, you never make it that simple, otherwise you'd never be a teacher. It's always the business of a teacher to complicate the ordinary simple things of life. So I had spent 18 hours preparing the lecture, and honestly, I didn't know what I was talking about. I had the vaguest idea, really. And when I finished the lecture, I heard one of the deacons See, oh, he says, you know, this Dr. Sheen's the most illuminating lecture, most illuminating. And I said, well, what did I say? He said, well, I don't quite know. And I said, neither do I. So that day, I became conscious of the fact that sometimes you get a credit for being learned when you're only confusing. Now, I'm going to tell you about our Lord. I'm just addressing myself, apparently, to these people. Are you there? Yes. <laughs> but it's always a challenge. I'm going to tell you about our Lord. And let me read a passage from St. Paul, which you may not understand. And you like to carry away big words, too, don't you? So I tell you what you do. There are a number of boys and girls that didn't come to this lecture. You can be much smarter than they are because I'm going to give you a word. And I will tell you what it means. And you ask them what it means. They're ignorant children. They don't know things. The word is K-E-N-O-S-I-S. Kenosis. K-E-N-O-S-I-S. Now I will explain it. Let me read this passage to you from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Incidentally, this passage that I am reading to you was once a hymn in the early church. Greek scholars have found the meter of this particular verse. And just think, Paul wrote his epistles before the Gospels were written. So this was the creed in the eastern part of the world before we had any New Testament. And here is the passage. Let your bearing toward one another arise out of the life of Christ. For the divine nature was his from the first. By this is meant, our Lord was always God. The divine nature was his from the first. Yet he did not think to snatch at equality with God. He didn't try to be like God because he was God. Who snatched at equality with God? 
Satan. I'm going to talk about the devil tonight. Satan tried to snatch at equality with God. Adam did too. Because the devil said to Adam, you will be like gods. But our Lord was God by nature. Now he made himself nothing. There's the word kenosis. He emptied himself. Emptied himself. Made himself nothing. And became... Assuming the nature of a slave. A slave. What does a slave do? A slave does two things. He does dirty things and hard things. So, our blessed Lord, who was always God, became man. That meant that he emptied himself of his glory. He humbled himself, became nothing, became a zero. I'm going to give you an example now that you young people can understand. Suppose you had the power to dispossess yourself of your body and just keep your soul. And suppose you wanted to have a kenosis an emptying. And you would put your soul into the body of a dog. Now think how humbling that would be. To take your mind, your understanding of things, and when you put it into the body of a dog, you would not exceed the limitations of that dog nature. First of all, you could speak, but you wouldn't speak. You'd only bark. You would have reason. You would know the right things to do. But you just follow instinct. Then there would be another humiliation. You'd have to spend the rest of your life with dogs. Run with a pack. Knowing you're a thousand times better than they. Now, if you would find it humiliating to go into the body of a dog... What humiliation is it for God to become a man? And when he takes this human nature, he resolves hardly ever to exceed the limitations of this human nature. So God can suffer. When people suffer today, they say, well, does God know anything about pain? Does God ever go without food for three days or ten days? Did God ever thirst? 
Does God know anything about the wounds of those that are brought into accident wards and hospitals? Was God ever ridiculed and mocked? Was he ever in exile? Does God know what it is to be in prison? Yes. When he became man, he could suffer. And then in addition to that humiliation, he spend, had to spend his life with men. Now you children know that sometimes if you don't know the answer to a question, the teacher may get impatient because she finds it hard to be with dumb kids. Now think how hard it is for God to be with dumb men. This infinite intelligence with those who are tardy of understanding. And they would ask him, what's the meaning of this simple parable? Now this is the person of our Lord, and this gives you some idea of what Christmas is. Because you see God in the form of a babe. Now why did he take upon himself our nature? St. Paul says he became a slave. And the slave does hard things. But our Lord became man in order to transfer to himself our burdens. Now what is transference? I'm sure many of you have seen that picture of a boy carrying another little boy on his back. And he said, he's not heavy, he's my brother. That is transference. Now our blessed Lord transferred three evils to himself. All the evils of the world can be reduced to three. Physical evil, like pain. Mental evil, like being mentally handicapped. Moral evil, like guilt or sin. Now let's follow the life of our Lord and see how he transferred ills to himself. First of all, physical pill, ills. We read in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and Matthew repeats it, that our blessed Lord took upon himself our sicknesses and our illnesses. Was our Lord ever sick? Very likely not. And why? Well, because our Lord never gave to man any power to do anything to him until the time of his passion. The moment he said now, as he went into the garden, then men could do to him as they will, as they willed. But up until then, they tried to throw him over, the, over a hill. He walked through the midst of them. Three times they attempted to stone him without effect. How then, if our Lord was never sick, could he take upon himself our sicknesses and our illnesses? By deep sympathy. 
Now, when you little children were very small, much smaller than you are now, you had tummy aches, and you had croup, and your mother was worried. Your mother suffered far more than you did because she understood your suffering. A mother suffers more than a delinquent daughter. And our blessed Lord, therefore, when he came to the blind and the deaf and the paralyzed and the leper, he so loved them that that pain was transferred to himself. That is why we read that when our Lord cured the blind and the deaf, what did he do? He sighed. He wept. He groaned. All of these agonies he felt. I'm sure, for example, when our Lord cured the blind, that he felt the blindness of a Milton. When he healed the deaf and sighed, that he was sensitized to the deafness of a Beethoven. So our blessed Lord, therefore, transferred to himself all the pains that we could ever suffer so that we would never say God does not know what it is to suffer. And then having overcome all of that in the resurrection, he gave us the example of being patient under trial. So our Lord therefore transferred to himself physical ills. Now let's go into mental ills. Mental ills would be mental retardation, doubt, atheism, deep sense of loneliness at having lost the faith, despair. All of these people have to be redeemed. And how could they be saved? except by the Lord taking upon himself those effects of sin. And he did that at that moment when the sun was ashamed to shed its light upon the crime of deicide and hid itself at high noon. And in the darkness, our blessed Lord uttered that cry, My God, my God, why? All the wise that have ever been asked in the world, he took upon himself and uttered that cry, which is one of the verses of a psalm. But the end of the psalm ends in joy. Again to remind us that mental ills as well as physical ills can be born in the light of the resurrection. And then he took upon himself moral ill or guilt. 
This was the principal reason for his coming. We owe a debt to God, a debt we cannot pay. Our Lord takes this debt upon himself. As a matter of fact, we deserve death because of sin. So our Lord takes death as a penalty upon himself. And he allowed, therefore, in the garden all the sins of the world to enter into his soul. I think all of the thefts of the world were put into his hands as if he were guilty. All the blasphemies of the world soiled his lips as if he had spoken them. And the agony of that guilt, being innocent, was so great that it brought from out of his body drops of blood falling upon the crimson olive, the olive roots of Gethsemane, making the first crimson rosary of redemption. And then on the cross, paying the ultimate debt of death. And how explain innocence taking upon himself our sin? Well, let us go to the Burma Road, World War II. A number of Japs had prisoners under their custody, and at the end of the working day, the Japs noticed that a shovel was missing. They gave an order that unless the shovel was returned within five minutes, ten men would be shot. At the end of three minutes, no one admitted the guilt. Then one man stepped forward and he was beaten to death. When they got back to the camp, they found all the shovels. He had taken the burden upon himself, the accusation of theft upon himself, as if he were guilty in order to save the others. Now that is what our blessed Lord did on the cross. That is why the cross is a very important in our lives. Then summing up now, all that our Lord has said. What does the word kenodo? Do you know Greek? You do. What does the word kenosis, K-E-N-O-S-I-S, mean? What does it mean? Empty. That's right. Huh? Empty. Making himself nothing. Our Lord emptied himself, made himself nothing. That's what it means. Now this we have described in order that you may come to a deeper understanding of what the life of Christ is. And the application of it is that we have to transfer to ourselves very often the guilt of others. 
There's a price tag on every soul in the world. Some are cheap. Others are very expensive. And we have to... We have to bear their burden, pray for them, sacrifice for them. I remember once I was hearing confessions on the eve of the first Friday of the month. And a young woman came to confession, into the confessional and said, I don't want to go to confession, I just want to kill time. And... I said, how much time do you want to kill? She said, about five minutes. Who are you fooling besides God? She said, my mother. She thinks I'm going to confession. And I said, are you afraid? She said, yes. Oh, I said, I could make your confession for you if I saw you. She said, wise guy, eh? I said, I don't know. Let's see. Give me a chance. Let me pull aside the screen, turn on the light, and take a look at you. I said, you're a prostitute. She said, that's right. That is my life. But that's not all. Something else much more serious. I begged and pleaded with her to no avail. I asked her to go up and kneel at the communion rail for a few minutes. She said, I will think about it. I met her in the church steps, asked her again. She said, after a half hour, I will tell you what it is and then run. She said, I made a pact with the devil. She said, I'm frightened to death. And she ran. I heard confessions that night. And I asked every penitent if they would say a rosary for the conversion of a sinner. One refused. Interesting that one should refuse. I finished hearing confessions about nine o'clock. I went up and knelt at the communion rail, praying for nine o'clock, ten o'clock, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, twelve thirty midnight. And I heard the church door open. It was this girl, and I went back into the confessional, and she went to confession. Here was a transference of someone else's guilt to another. Hence the importance of praying for one another, particularly for those who have morally and spiritually lapsed. Just as the clouds will pick up moisture from the sea and carry it over a mountaintop and then drop it on arid land, so too the prayers that we offer are carried by the Spirit and dropped on other souls that need it. The whole work of redemption is therefore being carried on. I may possibly in another talk show you how, in a very special manner, the cross is magnified in our own lives. But let the conclusion of this meditation be.
one gratitude to the Lord for humbling himself, making himself a zero for us, dying for us, and then giving us his life. For after the resurrection, he appears to us and then sends his spirit. And we live by that spirit of Christ. Familiarize yourself with his life. Read the Gospels. You will never attain a deep spiritual life without the scriptures. And particularly the New Testament. Read them in silence. Read them in the family. In silence we best discover God. And once in your own personal life you begin to see that our Lord is not a teacher, not a revolutionist, not a sociologist. Our Lord is first and foremost a savior. He saves us from our sins. And that's the reason, for example, the church, after we were speculating for a few years of having children go to communion without confession, the church officially suggested confession before communion. Why? Because who were the children receiving anyway? A Buddha? Who is Christ? If he isn't a savior, he isn't anything. Well, you say children have no sense of sin. No. Just let... Now, there's a little girl down there, two or three years old. How old is she? Two, three, four? How old? Nine. Glory be to God. <laughs> you certainly don't look that old. Oh, if there's a two or three-year-old here. You know, suppose, suppose a mother, and I'm sure it's true of you. Suppose your mother said to you, Mommy doesn't love you anymore. Tears would flow. Why? Because a child understands broken relationship. That's the essence of sin. And so, therefore, when we receive communion, we're receiving a Savior. This is the meaning of Christ. And now when you get home, take up your scriptures, knock off the dust, and then read the second chapter of the letter to the Philippians, verse 6. And you will recall the sermon that I preached to you today, and then you'll be helped to remember the word kenosis. God love you. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me once again for these powerful talks given by the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We'd ask you to share these messages with your friends, and of course, please support our radio efforts here across the world 
We've been, of course, relying on divine providence, which is you, our listeners. And so please be generous as you can. And we ask you to continue to pray for us as we will continue to pray for you. And so until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.